Father, we thank you that you speak to us by your word. And we pray that you would help us hear you now. You give us hearts to receive what you have to speak to us. You would help us to respond in a manner that is faithful and obedient to the gospel of your Son. And we ask these things for his name's sake. Amen. Well, Happy New Year. I'm sure it's been said a few times to you since you came in, but Happy New Year, all the same. How many of us have already made up a overly optimistic New Year's resolution list? Let me, uh, some of you shaking your heads, we've tried that too many times before, it's not going to happen. Let me share a silly one with you, uh, one of my, on my list. It concerns an ongoing disagreement that I have with my dear wife, Melissa. It's not to do with my weight for a change. It's actually about uh, me coming into any kind of contact with that fruit so many of us rave about, durian. Melissa, my wife, she likes durian. In fact, she loves durian. And I really don't. I'm sorry, I know this is a dangerous thing to say in front of a group of mostly Malaysians. I'm greatly outnumbered here this morning, but I do not like durian at all. To me, the smell of durian is nearly as bad as the way it tastes. So I have resolved that our household for 2015 will continue to be a durian-free zone. If we go to the next slide, you'll see this little sign and one more. And there we go. We're going to get one of those signs and put it outside the front door. No, no durian for us. That's a pretty silly disagreement I have with my wife, isn't it? That's something we can agree to disagree on. Well, important. It's fine if Melissa likes durian and I don't, as long as she doesn't bring it anywhere near me. But not all disagreements are like that, are they? You know, some are far more serious. A few years ago, there was a terrible accident in Switzerland. Uh, a train was going up a mountain track, and as it went up through a tunnel on this slope, it suddenly stopped. Uh, there was a fire in the engine, and those who were on the train, they managed to open the doors, they managed to get out. But by that time, uh, the engine fire was causing toxic smoke to billow out into the tunnel. Uh, and the people there, well, of course, they started uh, breathing it in. Uh, the guard on duty, he realized the danger straight away. And he encouraged all of them, we need to walk down the slope, out of the tunnel. Now, that was the, that was the longer way down. Uh, they had come all the way up to nearly the end of time. He said, no, we've got to walk down. We've got to go the longer way. And sadly, a number of uh, the more headstrong uh, people said, no, 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 we're going to go up. We're going to go up. It's, not, it's, it's, it's a shorter way. We'll go up. And they encouraged the majority of those people to do the same. And as the majority walked up the tunnel rather than down... Well, so the smoke rose with them, and they became incapacitated in minutes. They all died, the majority of them. Only a few listened to the guard and walked down the slope. It was a longer walk, but it was a walk to life rather than death. Many died. Only a few survived. Now, some disagreements are a matter of life and death. The letter of Galatians that we are starting in today is written to a church in crisis. 
There is a disagreement at the heart of their congregation that is a matter of life and death, though most of them are not even aware of it. Paul is really concerned for them. Uh, God had used Paul to establish them as a, a church in Galatia by his gospel only a few years earlier, but now their foundation in Christ was eroding rapidly. And so Paul, as their spiritual guardian, is desperate to bring the Galatian church back to safe ground so that they would not perish under the influence of wicked men. But at this point, they're already hooked onto the wrong advice, onto the wrong teaching. And as a result, their attitude to Paul has soured dramatically in the past few years. Uh, We read in uh, 4.16, chapter 4, verse 16 of this letter, Paul says of them, Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? And so given the situation, Paul starts this letter in a unique way, a different way from all of his other letters that we have in the New Testament. It's different in what the opening of this letter, what it emphasizes, and what it leaves out completely. The first thing Paul emphasizes as he opens this letter is his authority. His authority. He reminds the Galatian church why they need to listen to him. Why abandoning him and his teaching is so serious. Come with me to the beginning of this letter, Galatians 1. Let's look at it together. We read the opening verses. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead and all the brothers who are with me. Uh, Paul starts this letter by making it clear that he is an apostle. That first few words, Paul, an apostle. Now we can understand that title apostle in two ways. Uh, In its really common form, what we'll call a a small a apostle, it means simply one who is sent, a messenger, a messenger. So in a sense, all of us who are Christian here this morning, we are all small-a apostles. We have all been charged to be those who bring the good news of Jesus to others. We are all messengers of the gospel in that sense. But Paul is claiming a lot more for himself here than just simply being a messenger of the gospel. He states, doesn't he, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Paul had a special authority. So we're going to call him a capital A apostle. Paul was commissioned by Jesus to speak his words with his authority. And Paul reminds us here actually what authority Jesus himself has. Through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. God the Father has declared that Jesus is no mere man, but he is truly the Son of God, as he claimed he was. And God the Father has shown that by raising him from the dead and exalting him to the highest place over every other authority in our world. And Jesus, in his divine authority, had personally called and commissioned Paul along with the other 12 apostles, to speak his words to his church. So if the Galatian church rejected Paul and rejected Paul's teaching, they weren't just rejecting him, but they were rejecting he who stands behind Paul, God 
himself in Jesus Christ, his son. You know, I find it quite strange when uh, I hear Christians saying, you know, I I agree with Paul on on this matter. Yeah, he definitely got it right there. But on that one, yeah, he's going a little bit off. No. When rightly understood, what Paul writes that we have in the scriptures is what God inspired him to write. It is God's word from the lips of Jesus himself. We don't have capital A apostles like Paul today. Paul didn't make his protege Timothy an apostle. Rather, he told Timothy to entrust to faithful men the teaching that Timothy had received from him as an apostle. And for us today, as we come down that whole chain, 2,000 years later, what do we have? We have the apostolic word. And this is how our Lord Jesus rules us as a church. That's why the Bible is central to both our teaching and our practice as a church here at Smack, because this is Jesus' means to rule us, his words. Paul's emphasized his authority. Now he's going to emphasize and remind them of what he brought this church in his authority, the gospel that he first brought to the Galatians. Remember the gospel. Come with me to verse 3. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of God our Father. Paul reminds this church that they became God's people entirely as a result of that first word. We see in verse 3, grace. What does grace mean? means undeserved favor. It's something that is not merited. You can't earn it. It's given freely in love. Grace. Verse 3, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This grace, this undeserved favor they'd received from God had brought about peace with him. Because God is the one who had established relationship with the Galatians, not the other way round. You see how Paul describes the Galatians, their state in verse 4. Who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. He speaks of the Galatians as those who have been delivered, rescued from, from what? From the present evil age. It's an age we still live in today, friends. Where many do not know life with God. You know, we refuse to love and honor and obey Him as we should. And instead, we as humanity, we live for our own selfish desires. What what Paul calls sin here. We pretend we're the gods of our own lives, that we're in control. We're the masters. And of course, if I'm pretending to be the master of life and you're pretending to be the master of life, sooner or later we're going to clash. Or we'll manipulate. If we can't manipulate and find a way of getting our way subtly, then we'll fight with one another. Either way, it causes great misery to our lives. Broken relationships seen on a local scale, on a global scale, well, we see the outbreaks of hostility between nations, even war. But the worst consequence of our sin, of us pretending that we are God and God is not, is God's response to it. He hates wickedness. And our mutiny against him is about as wicked as it gets. And so we're warned the wages of sin is death. The prospect of 
God's condemnation to be cut off from life with him, which was the very life we were made for. And that's what all of us desperately need a rescue from. And Paul makes it clear that God is in the business of doing just that. In verse 4, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins. Other religious leaders, they came to teach, not to rescue. Oh, Jesus was a great teacher. But in this summary of the gospel that Paul gives us here, he makes no mention of the teaching of Jesus. But the average person out on the street in KL, they believe a Christian is simply someone who follows Christ's teaching and example. If I live the way Jesus lived and I do what he told me to do, then I'll be okay with God at the end of the day. I'll earn his favor. Paul says Jesus came to deliver us, to rescue us from our sins. If you see someone who's in real trouble, say someone who's drowning in the sea, you don't throw them a manual on how to swim. You throw them a rope. We're left to ourselves. We would drown in our sin. The problem of our rebelling against God, it's hardwired in our hearts. It's far too deep for us to deal with in our own strength. But Paul wonderfully reminds us Jesus came to rescue us from our sin, not to teach us how to deal with it ourselves. And so the heart of his gospel is not self-salvation. It is not self-salvation. Like every other religion in the world out there, follow the rules, you'll be okay. Do, 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 do. No. The heart of Paul's gospel is substitution. Not self-salvation. It's Jesus has done it all for you. He gave himself for your sin. Won't you trust in him? Won't you depend on him? Because that's our only hope. Jesus alone can deal with our sin as the only one who never sinned and then yet took our place on the cross in love and died our death so that we might escape it. That's why the gospel is so revolutionary. We don't do anything to get right with God. We rely on a rescue that we take no part in whatsoever, but that has been provided freely by his grace. It's all God's doing. See, we continue reading on verse 4. According to the will of our God and Father, God placed his seal of approval on this rescue in Christ alone, By raising him from the dead. It's a picture, his resurrection. It shows us that if we belong to him, well, the penalty for death, for our sin, it's being conquered in him. We see that pictured in his new life. So as one writer puts it, Jesus did all we should have done in our place. So when he becomes our savior, we are absolutely free from penalty or condemnation. Which is why Paul can say in verse 5, to God be the glory forever and ever, because the one who does the work gets the credit. That's the way it works, isn't it? God alone has rescued us from a sin we cannot save ourselves from. So God alone gets the credit. He gets the glory. Or we might think to ourselves here today, oh, I know this. I know the gospel. Well, the Galatians knew this once. But they needed to be reminded of it, friends. They were in danger of losing it, as we'll see. 
We need to continually remind ourselves as a church that we are saved, that we are right before God by his grace. Never pretend we can move on from this foundation to something else. Because that's the deadly trap that these Galatians have fallen into. And so Paul gets straight to the point. See, normally in one of his, in his letters, in his opening address, he'd give thanks to God for the people that he's writing to. Galatians is the only letter where he doesn't do that. Even the Corinthians, if you've read Corinthians, you know what was going on there with all their issues of, of sexual immorality and division in the church. Paul still gives warm thanks for them before he starts addressing those issues. But not the Galatians. You know, if, if St. Mary's was on fire and our very lives were at risk, but you hadn't noticed, of course, because you're all concentrating so well on the sermon. If I was the only one who could see the danger, who could see the fire back there, you know, I wouldn't waste time saying, guys, yeah, thanks. Thanks for your kind attention. I, you know, I'm so thankful for you guys, and I'm thankful for this opportunity I have to address you and share this. No! There's a fire! Get out! I wouldn't waste time giving thanks. I'd say, look at the fire. We've got to go. Well, the Galatian church is on fire and not in a good way. So Paul raises the alarm. Realize the danger you're in. Have a look at those first few words he, he writes in verse 6. I am astonished. No thanksgiving, but I am astonished. I am dumbfounded. That's what the Paul says. Given what the Galatians have done in his absence, though many of them were unaware of it, they were abandoning their only hope for life with God. In verse 6, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ. God had mercifully called them to faith in his son. By his spirit, given them eyes to see Jesus despite their sinful inclination to reject him. That they might have life in his name. You know, again, Paul is insistent. Salvation is God's work, not yours. Oh, not only did he give his only son to deliver us from our sin, he calls us to faith in that rescue. He brings us to an active trust in his son. Yes, for many of us, we can recall a time when I say, I trusted on Christ, I received him. But God tells us in his word, the reason you were able to do that as a sinner like me is because God in his grace was already at work in your heart giving you eyes to see Christ clearly. Because otherwise we are truly helpless. You see, in our sin, we are addicted to finding our security, our purpose, our rest in the works of what our own hands, of what we do. We're not just sick and in need of a little bit of a helping hand. Paul says in Ephesians 2, we're dead in sin. It's only when God calls us out of that darkness will we abandon faith in ourselves what we do and rely entirely on Jesus and his finished work. But the Galatians, they were going the other way. They were abandoning Jesus as their only hope. And verse 6, turning to a different gospel. It's not God's power to save. 
In fact, it has no power at all. You see what Paul says in verse 7. Not that there is another one. Not that there is another rescue. Not that there is another gospel. Oh, the gospel they're turning to is a fake. It's as useful as a counterfeit check in Malaysia. Now, I'm personally convinced that no one can successfully counterfeit checks in this country today. I'm not saying I've tried, but I'm convinced no one can. Because the banks over here are just so strict with the real ones. You know, the number of checks that I've personally had rejected because I haven't written a number clearly enough or there's a small mark in the wrong place, they'd spot a fake in a second. Well, this fake gospel that the Galatians are turning to is just as useless. It's not real. It's got no power to save, no power to deal with sin. But like any counterfeit, this false gospel, it looks pretty authentic. It's being introduced by some very religious people that seem to have some very impressive credentials. Verse 7 Paul says, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. You see, these these troublemakers are not telling the Galatians to simply reject Jesus, but they're distorting the message of rescue in him. We'll see as we work through the rest of this letter together over the next few weeks that that these guys, these troublemakers, are, are coming from a Jewish background. And they're encouraging the largely Gentile, non-Jewish church to add to their faith in Christ by trusting in some of the works of God's law to the Jews in the Old Testament. It's good that you've got Jesus, but do make sure you attend that religious festival. It's good that you've got Jesus, just you've got to observe that strict dietary regulation. You've got to accept the mark of circumcision. Oh, they're all commands from God. We can read about them in the Old Testament although they were never intended to be the means of the justification of Israel, let alone us. But still, it sounds so biblical. I can read about it in the Bible. Paul says, you add such works to your dependence on Jesus to be right before God. Jesus plus works gets me right with God. You will lose the gospel of grace completely and forsake your only hope of life with him. It's like adding air to a vacuum and then still pretending you've got a vacuum. No. By definition, a vacuum has no air. The minute you add air, it's no longer a vacuum. Well, so the minute you add works to the gospel of grace, you no longer have the gospel of grace. You just end up denying Jesus as your only savior from sin, from start to finish. So Paul says that any gospel which isn't based on the fact that, one, we are too sinful to contribute to our salvation, and two, we are saved entirely on the basis of Jesus' finished work, any gospel that goes against those two truths, it's a distortion. It's a counterfeit, and it is useless to save. Now we might wonder, well, what is the place of works in the Christian life then? As those who are entirely saved by God's grace to us in Jesus and nothing more, no buts, no additions. Well, friends, as as those called by God to faith in his son, as those justified, declared not guilty before him by his blood. 
Well, God doesn't throw a rope down to us while we're drowning in our sin, haul us out of our misery, only to say, all right, now jump back in. No. As God rescues us through faith in his son, he gets to work on our hearts by his spirits as we come under this word as his people. Not just merely changing our outward behavior, but the deepest desires and longings of our heart that we would long for him rather than for sin. He enables us to continue repenting, turning from our sin, and finding life in him as we enjoy the new freedom of knowing God in truth and spirit. The very relationship that God made us for. See, our growth in godliness, it's not a burden. It's freedom from the misery and futility of sinful living. And it's a work that God has done in all who genuinely trust in Christ. It's the fruit of our salvation. See, the problems start when we start to believe that our growth in godliness is the root, the foundation of our salvation. The means by which we get right with God, not the fruit, the result of him putting us right with himself and his son. Because I know I still battle against a prideful desire to justify myself before God. To pretend I can somehow do it. I can keep back some of the glory. I can take some of the credit. And that is a path to spiritual destruction. It leads us away from a humble dependence on the cross, which is what the Galatians were doing, by trusting in religious works. Oh, I know I can be prone to that. You know, when I start to take my eyes off Jesus... And his cross. And as I do that, I start to feel the weight of sin dragging me down. I'm anxious as I remember the times I failed to honor God rightly. And I tell myself, oh man, I've just got to try harder. And so I start to make my right standing before God about me. And what I can do for him. No, no, no. The minute we believe we can do anything to stay in God's good books, we're in danger of deserting Jesus, of failing to truly know him and recognize him as our Lord. Because I'm saying, Jesus, your cross isn't actually enough. Your blood can't really cover all of my sin. I've got to work a little bit as well. Jesus, you've got me in. Thanks very much. Now I'm going to keep myself in. In my wicked prize at times, I still want to justify myself before God. Instead of remembering the gospel, that God is pleased with his people, whom he has brought to faith in his son, and it's got nothing to do with what we do. But when he looks on me, a sinner, having called me to faith in Christ, having washed me clean by his blood, he sees not my sin, but the righteousness of his son. That he's clothed me in. And friends, I'll tell you, it's only, it is only as we see and believe and trust in that rescue, not of ourselves, but entirely on him. It's only as we do that, that we will genuinely love Jesus more than our sin. It's only as we fix our eyes on Christ as our only hope that we will be free to serve him as he desires. Paul's got one more warning for the Galatians here. It's in verse 8. Realize the destiny 
of those who distort the gospel of grace. Realize the destiny of those who distort the gospel of grace. Paul says in verse 8, But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. Paul's point is that it doesn't matter who the messenger is. The gospel is what matters. Even if he... The apostle of Jesus, Paul himself, began teaching against salvation in Christ alone. He should be rejected. See, Paul derives his authority as an apostle from the gospel Jesus entrusted to him. He doesn't bring anything to it. He has no authority outside of it. He tells the Galatians, evaluate all that you hear by the gospel I first preached to you, which is the gospel Jesus gave me to teach. The same goes for us. Make sure you judge what I teach and the other pastors here teach at smack against this apostolic word. Even if an angel appeared with a message from heaven, I'm sure we would be distracted by that. Oh, we should still go back to this word. We don't judge this word by what we hear and experience. Rather, we judge what we hear and what we experience by this word. Even an angel You go back to the Bible. And for all those who speak against God's word and the gospel within, Paul says, end of verse 8, let him be accursed. And the word here is anathema. It literally means to be cut off. Those who would preach a different gospel are condemned to eternal hell. Some of the most sobering verses of all of Scripture. Is Paul just being hysterical here? Is he allowing his argument to get away with him a little bit? I mean, really condemned to hell? Just in case the Galatians miss it, he emphatically repeats himself. Verse 9, as we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be cut off. Let him be accursed. Yeah. Paul's definitely saying what we think he's saying. Why is the penalty so great? Well, it's because the crime is so horrific. I wonder, does anyone recognize this man coming up on the screen? Anyone recognize him? Yeah, he said it. It was Harold Shipman, that's right. Harold Shipman. Back in the year 2000, this British doctor was convicted of one of the worst crimes recorded in medical history. He had been a respected and well-known member of his local community. Many trusted him and relied on his expertise when they were seriously ill. And over 23 years, it's believed he systematically murdered hundreds of his patients through lethal injection. You know, eventually he was found out because of the high number of death certificates being uh, processed through his practice. And he received the highest sentence the British judge could deliver at that time. Life imprisonment without the hope of parole. Because in his wickedness, he had destroyed the very lives of those who had trusted in him, and he had done so for his own perverse ends. We're rightly outraged when we hear of such a crime. Well, friends, how great should the punishment be upon those who for their own selfish ends lead others away from eternal life in Christ. 
by misrepresenting him. Pretending he's not the adequate saviour for sins that he is, and so denying him and encouraging others to do the same. Robbing God of the glory he is due for the incredible salvation he's given us in his son, and telling people to trust instead in a gospel of works. That is no gospel at all. Leading poor souls closer and closer to the gates of hell. What penalty fits the crime of denying someone their only hope of eternal life? Paul says, let such men be cut off in every way imaginable. We need to be on our guard, friends, because there are those who tragically distort the gospel today for their own ends. We need to guard what we teach, what we know, what we share, but we also need to guard ourselves from other influences. See, gospel distorters today, their influence can be very, very subtle, but no less potent than the troublemakers back in Galatia. One discerning brother noticed just this past Christmas a disturbing item being shared by many confessing Christians online through Facebook and Twitter. And this is what he said in his response. Just listen. You've got to be careful what you share online. Over the weekend, Facebook and Twitter were suddenly inundated with links to a new recording of the Christmas hymn, Angels from the Realms of Glory, mashed up with Angels We Have Heard on High. It was recorded by the Piano Guys and features David Archuleta, a one-time runner-up on American Idol. The song is beautifully sung and the music is rich. It is no surprise that it quickly gained over a million views. Well and good, right? Well, except for one thing. Its purpose is to separate you from Jesus Christ. Why did he say that? Well, it's because this video was produced by a very well-executed evangelistic campaign by the cult of Mormonism. If you clicked on it and you followed the links, you'd get to a web page encouraging you to become a Mormon. Oh, the promo, it looked very biblical. It, it involved Christian songs. And Mormonism claims to be a very close cousin to Christianity. Mormons claim to honor the Bible. They speak of Jesus as a savior. They even claim that he is the only son begotten of the Father. But if pushed to it, they'll deny that Jesus is fully God. And they'll deny that we are justified, declared not guilty for our sin before God, by his grace alone, through faith in his son alone. The Mormon gospel is a distortion of the true gospel of Christ, which means it's no gospel at all. It's just another hopeless message of self-salvation through good works and clean living. And so this brother rightly concluded, this recording was not intended to glorify Jesus, but to draw attention to a false representation of him. This video reminds us, once again, not all that glitters is gold. Not all that glitters is gold. We need to be discerning, brothers and sisters. For our own sakes and the sakes of others, be discerning. You know, if there's one resolution we should all hold to this new year and every new year as a church, it's to resolve to know nothing but Christ and him crucified. 
to continue encouraging one another to hold fast to him and his gospel. No buts, no additions, salvation in Christ alone. Because that is God's power to save. That is God's power to renew us, that we would be the people he has saved us to be. This gospel alone brings God the glory that he deserves. And so what we're going to do now is we're going to declare it to one another. I'd like us all to stand. And in our service sheets or on the screens, we're going to declare to one another the gospel as we have it in the Apostles' Creed. Together we say, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. From there, he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the holy universal church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Amen.